that I picked this particular text is um, kind of my one shot here, and I picked a text on the resurrection. And on the one hand, my motives are purely selfish. I preached this text in class this spring, and I thought, this is my first time here, I should do something familiar. But I also picked it because I think we normally, when we think of the resurrection, many of us believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus, but then we move immediately to our own resurrection, right, in, in the future when Christ returns. And that's a very, very biblical concept. But Christians have confessed for centuries and even millennia that in order for the resurrection to be good news for us in the future, it had to first be good news for Jesus. And I want you to think about that as we read the passage that um, this good news had to be first true of Christ. And on that bedrock is built our own resurrection. So please hear God's word from uh, first Mark chapter 1 and then Mark chapter 16. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for friends and family that maybe here with us that we don't normally get to see. We pray that you would, God, by your Holy Spirit, help us to see ourselves rightly and help us to see you rightly and your Son, that your name might be made great and that the name of your gospel might be made great. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, this summer you may have picked up a book uh, since you've got a little more time on your hands than normal. And uh, you put the book down and you pick it back up maybe in a week. You know, you haven't read it in a while. And you immediately flip a few pages back, right? So you can uh, remind yourself of what you've been reading that you'd already forgot. Well, when we come to the book of Mark, we have to do the same thing. And since we're picking up towards the end, remind ourselves of what's already taken place. That's why I've got verse 1 here in the bulletin. It's sort of Mark's title of his book. He calls it a gospel in verse 1. We probably don't use the word gospel in casual conversation, but in the first century, the word gospel was a word for uh, mighty emperors and kings. It's a word that they used to announce that their armies had been victorious. It was a gospel. It was good news and good tidings that uh, the emperor had been victorious. 
And that's what Mark uses to call this book that he's writing. And so to take this passage seriously in the way Mark intended it, we have to see how uh, Jesus' resurrection fits into this good news, these glad tidings of what's happened. And I want to try to answer three questions. And the first one is, how did the story of these women help us to see death as a bigger threat than we might have considered? And the second is, how is the resurrection better than we might have considered? And the third is, how is discipleship different than we might have considered? So, death worse and the resurrection better and discipleship different than we might have already thought. Well, if you look down in verse 1, Mark writes, When the Sabbath was passed, and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So first, who were these women? Well, we know that Mary Magdalene was a woman whom Jesus had already cast out seven demons from. And that's all we know about her. We know that the Mary, the mother of James, who's also called Mary, the mother of James and of Joseph, she was also at the cross when Christ was crucified. And in the Gospel of Matthew, she's called just the other Mary. And that's uh, caused people in the church to think that maybe this Mary was, in fact, the mother of Christ. And we can't know that for sure, but it is possible. The third is Salome. And all we know about her is that she was also called uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, for her husband was named Zebedee. That's how she's called in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we, see, uh, we also see in the previous chapter that these three women were not new to Jesus. They hadn't come upon him on the cross, but these three women had been with Jesus all throughout Galilee, uh, ministering to him, which meant these women took care of his physical needs like clothing and food and shelter. And they had given up their whole lives and found their identity in following Jesus. And that meant that they had embodied uh, that scripture that might be familiar to some of you. These women embodied um, where Christ said that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Which is kind of an ironic pronoun at this point. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. These women embodied that scripture. And in verse 2 it says that, When the sun had risen, they made their way to anoint him with spices. Now, to really understand how the women help uh, reveal to us that death is a bigger threat than we might have realized, we have to get inside their head, you know, and think about it how they would have thought about it. Which would have been very different from us because their eyes had never seen a New Testament. Their eyes had never heard of an empty tomb. They had never read these, these next verses. Though their eyes would have seen this event through two things. They would have interpreted this event through the crucifixion of Jesus and through their own Bible. You know, these are Jewish women. And they would have interpreted what was happening through the Old Testament. They would have remembered Genesis. The passage that we read in, from the Old Testament lesson today in the bulletin, that death wasn't natural. You know, as they went to the tomb to anoint Jesus, they knew that death wasn't natural to this world. But they would have remembered Adam and how God had made Adam good and given him Eve and how the world was all good. And it was only through Adam's sin that death had entered the world. And they would have thought death to be a tragedy, completely unnatural to this world. And they would have remembered that Adam cursed, excuse me, God cursed Adam for his sin 
But that also affected all of us because we're descended from Adam. And it had affected not only humanity, but, but plants and animals and the whole created world. And so death would have been a tragedy to them, completely unnatural. And they would have also remembered Jesus in his own words. What did Jesus say about death? You know, many of us um, hope that w- when we do pass on, it will be uh, perhaps with friends and family and that we'll utter um, some last word of comfort right to those around us. Well, Jesus' death was nothing like that. You know, he died um, scandalously, and his last words on the cross were, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they would have approached Jesus' own death as not only the way the Old Testament taught them that this was a curse from God, but even Jesus' own words revealed that, that death itself was a curse. And that would have been going through their head as they traveled to the tomb, and perhaps for them, death would have been worse than they ever thought it could be, taking even their Messiah. And I wonder if death is perhaps worse, a bigger threat than we have considered it to be. I think sometimes we're we're a bit like flies caught caught in a spider web, and we're very aware of of, of the immediate uh, problems in our life. And we're so cons- consumed about um, these immediate things, like a fly in the web, but we forget that there's this other thing, like the flies forget that the spider is coming for them. Or you might remember Indiana Jones. You know, he's, Indiana Jones is in the tank, and he's, he's running from the enemy, and he's dodging bullets and bazookas, enemies chasing him. And then the camera pulls out, and you realize that Not only Indiana Jones, but all the bad guys, they're all headed over a cliff. And their own little fight isn't even going to matter because they're all headed over the cliff. And I think sometimes we're so distracted by immediate things that we forget about this other looming thing, death, and this, this curse from God. And I think we tend to think of death maybe either optimistically or pessimistically. How do we think of death optimistically? Well, we say, well, death is sort of... Um, a layover until I can come back around. Um, maybe if you believe in reincarnation, you might think of death that way. Or perhaps death is just a layover until um, I go into some other better place. You know, We say, don't say goodbye, say, we'll see you later. Or we think of it pessimistically, like, well, look, this life is it. And that's all there is. And so when you die, that's it. But neither the optimistic view or the pessimistic view of death can really help us to empathize with anyone. You know, because if we're optimistic about it, we can say, look, this is bad, but, you know, cheer up because you're going to come back around or we'll see you again. But, and if you're pessimistic, you can say, look, it is what it is. And I'm sorry, but this is just it. Only thinking of death the way that these women would have thought of it, the way Jesus had thought of it, as a curse from God, can we truly enter into the suffering of people and really empathize with what they're going through and think, this is not all right. This is not okay. This is a part of God's curse on the world. So I wonder this morning if death is a bigger threat than you may have realized before. Um, A bigger threat because it's connected to to God. Um, so we've considered how death might be worse than we, than we may have thought before.
Now, how is the resurrection better? You may have heard uh, this bit by a comedian on self-help. I'm neither endorsing nor denouncing this comedian. After all, I'm using him in my sermon. But this is what he says about the self-help genre. He says, if you're looking for self-help, why would you read a book by somebody else? That's not self-help, that's help. I thought that would go over bigger than it did. (laughs) But, you know, joking aside, the reason that we call it self-help is because we know that, well, whatever advice I'm going to get from this book, it is only going to be as good as I am disciplined to put it in action. But in the end, I'm, it's true, I'm, I'm really just helping myself by this. And Mark's, news is, Mark's good news is only going to be better than we thought if we see how it's not self-help, but real help. You know, when your mom said she was helping you with your homework, she tricked you. It was only self-help. If, if she had really been wanting to help you, she would have said, you go outside and play, and I'm going to take your book and do it for you and turn it in for you, and that's real help. Mark's, Mark's good news about the resurrection is real help for three reasons. It's physical, it's personal, but it's also representative. When we talk, so how is it physical? Well, when we talk about Jesus' resurrection... We're no longer in the realm of allegory or inspirational stories. We're not in the realm of chicken soup for the soul. We're in the realm of historical fact, historical data. And if we're going to take Mark as an author seriously, that's how he brings it to us, as a historical, physical phenomenon. Why do I say that? Well, for one reason, women are the first ones to witness the empty tomb. If you were trying to sell Christianity in the first century, one thing you would not do is make your witnesses women because they were culturally irrelevant as witnesses within Judaism, but they were also um, uh, judicially irrelevant, right? Their testimony was not considered admissible in court at all simply because they were women. And the only reason Mark would have to include it in his story is if this is how it had actually happened, right? And it's, it's a little quirky the way you would expect history to be. You know, the women are chatting on the way to the tomb about who's going to roll away to the stone. We don't know. And the stone would have weighed at least 500 pounds, maybe 1,500. Um, the man that we find in the tomb takes the time to say, look where they laid him. You know, tombs at that time weren't uh, for one person. They were usually for multiple people. And so they would cut out a little section of the wall. You can imagine a little cut out here. And you would lay the body there. And the angel takes the time to say, look where they laid him. He's not there anymore. It's physical and historical, but it's also personal. And by that, I just mean that the same man who has risen from the dead was the same man who walked and talked with those women as they ministered to him around Galilee. It's not a different personality now. It's not... A new body with this, this brand new set of characteristics and a way of thinking that weren't there before. The Christ who rose from the dead and who sits at the right hand of God is the same one who preached the Sermon on the Mount. It's personal. But third, this is the part of the sermon, if you don't catch anything else I say, 
This is the most important part. It's physical, it's personal, it's also representative. What do I mean by that? Well, we live in a country right now that has a representative government, right? Uh, We can't all run up to Washington and vote about every little thing. It's just a physical impossibility. And so we have a representative who votes for us. Unless he votes, we have no vote. We have no say. And since we can't, he has to do it. Well, in the same way, Jesus' resurrection is representative. It was unique. There was no one else being raised from the dead at the time. There was no one else simultaneously rising from the dead as Jesus was, was, as, was, was rising. And this was contrary to how they would have thought at all at the time. Because if you'll remember from reading the Gospels, there's a dispute between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees believe in the bodily resurrection and the Sadducees don't believe in the bodily resurrection. And Jesus isn't impressed by any of it because they, none of them really want a representative resurrection. None of them think they need a representative resurrection. They're all convinced that they'll be raised at the last day because of their own faithfulness, right? I've been a faithful Jew. I've been a faithful Christian. And that's why I'll be raised at the end. And yes, it will be a bodily resurrection. I'm not a liberal. I believe in a bodily resurrection. But Jesus calls them what whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers because they didn't want anything to do with a representative resurrection. They didn't think that death was that big of a threat. They were expecting themselves to be raised on their own merit. But Jesus' resurrection is good news because just like everything Jesus did, his baptism, he didn't need to be baptized, he wasn't a sinner. His crucifixion, he didn't need to be crucified, he wasn't a sinner. His resurrection is also representative for us. And there's a passage from Paul's letters, another first century writer as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, Paul's reflecting on the resurrection. And this is what he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. For as by a man came death, Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each according to his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ... I didn't throw that in there just to confuse you even more. This is crucial to catch the meaning of the resurrection. Paul's drawing a parallel between Adam and Jesus. Adam and Jesus. God cursed Adam because of his disobedience, right? Now God has blessed Jesus by his obedience, by raising him from the dead. Just as all who were in Adam fell with Adam... Now all who are in Christ are raised with Christ. So as bad as the bad news was that we all fell in Adam, the good news is even better that we've been risen in Christ. We have trusted in him. And this is how the good news may be better than we had previously considered. That means that if you have trusted in Jesus, in his representative death this morning, you can say definitively, assuredly, That your tomb someday will be just like Jesus's. Empty. You'll be able to look and say, where is he? He, He's not there. Just like you could say about Jesus's tomb. So death has told you that you're a guilty sinner. So what? 
Jesus' tomb is empty, and so will yours. You know, many times we try to um, hope in the resurrection, Hope in heaven, I should say, despite our bodies. You know, our, our bodies are, are dying and uh, eventually rest in the grave. And we hope we're going to be in heaven despite all that. Jesus says, you bring your body with you because I've taken care of all that. I have risen for the dead for you. And you can rest assured in that. And that's a much bigger solution to a much bigger problem than we normally think of. The death might be worse than we have thought. The resurrection is better. How is discipleship different? Well, two things. First, disciples look to, disciples must look to Jesus' resurrection before they look to their own. Disciples must look to Jesus' resurrection before they look to their own. Jesus' reward of an empty tomb is only because of his obedience, right? Can you help Jesus raise from the dead? If you believe that he did, no. It, it happened. You believe that's good news for you? Yes. So that can, can you affect it all whether or not you get raised from the dead? No, you can't. Because Jesus affected it. And that's not self-help. That's real, unadulterated help. And we see that from Peter, who would deny Jesus not once, not twice, not three times. Peter couldn't trust in his own faithfulness. He couldn't trust that he had prayed enough, that he had done the right thing. You know, a part of me wishes the disciples had been like the band of brothers, that great show that shows how these guys stuck together and fought together. I wish the disciples had been like that, but they weren't. The disciples abandoned Christ when he needed them most. Peter denied Jesus, not before some court, Peter wasn't just standing in front of someone who he should have been afraid of. It was, it was a little servant girl. He wasn't even bold enough to admit to a servant girl that he was a follower of Christ. And so disciples of Christ must look to Jesus' own resurrection and not theirs first. Yes, you will be raised, but only because Jesus was raised. Not because of your faithfulness. And discipleship is also different. Because disciples of the resurrected Christ fear God. Um, if you look at Psalm 130, four, verse 4, the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is hope, excuse me, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Let me read that again. But with you there is forgiveness. That you may be feared. I think sometimes when we trust in Christ, we are so thankful that God is no longer wrathful towards us and no longer angry at us because of what Jesus did that we kind of overreact in that and God becomes our buddy. What's the problem with that? As long as God is your buddy and only your buddy, you will always be crippled by the fear of man. Because you will fear man much more than you fear God. And that's crippling, right? It's crippling to, to a parent who's so afraid that their child doesn't like them. And it's crippling to a child who's petrified that their classmates don't like them. No, it's only by fearing God that I can look at you and say, it's okay if you don't like my sermon. It's okay. 
because I'm not primarily afraid of you. I'm primarily afraid of God. And that's not that I'm terrified of God, as if he's a tyrant, but that I respect him. And in the psalm, why is it that um, the psalmist fears God? Not because he's done something terrible, but simply because he's been forgiven. It's God's mercy, his tender mercy, his graciousness that causes us to fear him. And we see that in this passage so prominently that, but it, there's something about it that's still just unnatural. That when I read it, I think, the only reason I believe that is because you're saying it, God. You count the number of times that the women are afraid in this passage. But Psalm 130 tells us exactly why they would be afraid. They had run up against the awe and wonder and glory of the mercy of God, raising Jesus for sinners. And it gave them a beautiful, wonderful fear of God. Disciples fear God because of this mercy that's been poured out in Jesus. Well, with these three women... We have such a great example of people who gave their lives away for the sake of following Christ. Right? They forsook their own lives to find it in Jesus. And that hope was not in vain. They found a risen Christ that morning. And this morning I want to ask you, where is your identity? Where have you placed your identity? In your own faithfulness as a Christian? In your faithfulness as a mother? Have you placed your identity... Um, in your faithfulness as um, someone who has a successful career and who can you know, navigate things well? Is that where your hope is in? Well, all those hopes will ultimately disappoint because they won't deal with your real problem of death, God's curse. Only the resurrection, Jesus' re- representative resurrection, can deal with your, busy, your biggest problem, and he has. So put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in the risen Christ. Because like Peter, we all, we all fall. And we all prove that we're deserving of nothing but God's curse and death. But there's only one man who's come through. Only one man who's really been faithful. One man who's been impressive and by his obedience was resurrected from the dead. And he says to you, come, I'm the resurrection and the life. And I'm for you. My perfect repentance is for you. Uh, my perfect sinless life is for you, my perfect crucifixion is for you, and my perfect resurrection is for you that you might live. And that's probably why they call this good news in the first century. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask you to uh, reveal to us um, your mysteries, the mystery of your gospel that we might Uh, truly be able to say that your good news is rest to us and glorifying to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.